I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 34 of the Appendix N Book Club. This episode, we will be discussing Roger Zelazny's Nine Princes in Amber. My name is Jeff, and with me is our ever-forgetful Hoy. Indeed. I, I'm not even <laughs> sure what I'm doing here. <laughs> and our special guest is DCC super writer, co-host of Sanctum Secorum, and future author of the Dying Earth setting for DCC RPG, Mark Bruner. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Hello, Mark. Hey, Mark. <laughs> Welcome to the show. So one thing we like to ask people right from the very beginning is, how did you get into role-playing games? I think that my first memory was I had some older cousins that uh, would come to our house for Christmas every couple of years, maybe. And these were teenagers, and this was in the seventies, and and so they were the sort of the, the you know the the prototypical teenagers that you envision. I looked up to them. I I was probably five or six years old when they came one Christmas, and they were playing a strange new thing. They were playing Dungeons and Dragons one night, and I remember it being a big deal that I asked to stay up late and play with them. Um, but they welcomed me. And I just, I don't have a lot of memories about that session or anything that in particular, just the joy of that experience that sort of kicked off my interest in role-playing games at a very young age. And, and so I think it was somewhat influenced by the fact that, you know, D&D was very topical at the time. I had these older cousins that came in and introduced me to it and welcomed me, you know, gave me a dwarf and an axe and said, you know, here you go, you know, make, roll some dice and make some big decisions. And it felt very empowering as a, you know, as a five or six year old to do that. And I, I sort of, after that, never found like the right niche or group to um, to continue those adventures with. So I bought all the, you know, the books with my allowance that I could and, and sort of role played by myself and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and just did that until I got to a, a point in, in age and, you know, social, uh, you know, aspects that I, I found that group in, in middle school and, you know, sort of carried on from there through through high school and, and just evolved from that point on. So that's my introduction to uh, to D and D originally, and then sort of spawned into other systems at the time. Um, you know, very early age, I think, but uh, just you know, just crystallized memory of of that initial experience. Right. So, in middle school and high school, were you the dungeon master, or were you a player, or did you kind of swap it up? You know, we we sort of swapped it up a little bit. Um, one of us would pick like a system that we were really intrigued by and run games in that system. But the kind of core group, you know, we had a lunchtime group that met, you know, at, at lunchtime and, and got, you know, weird glances from everybody else who, you know, would go outside <laughs> and, and do other things, you know, go outside and kick the soccer ball or whatever. We were, we were sitting there in the classroom at lunch rolling dice. And, you know, I remember, you know, a lot of, a lot of the things we did were D&D, but we also, you know, explored Gamma World. I remember Robotech being another you know, role-playing system mm -hmm. that we we kind of played around in. So that was the, uh, the Palladium, Palladium system. Exactly, yeah. Right, and right. Uh, the Warhammer Fantasy was one that I sure. ran uh, because I was really interested in in sort of the uh, the more grittier aspects, you know, that were mm -hmm. part of the the Warhammer Fantasy at the time. Um, right. And and so we we tried different systems, and we and some of us took on the mantle. 
sometimes we, you know, we just had a running GM that would take us through like an overarching campaign. A lot of it was sporadic. A lot of it was just, you know, catch as we can because um, the culture that I was part of, especially during the 80s and I was growing up in West Texas, you know, it was not a big net that you could cast to find your people. And, mm-hmm. you know, we we felt like it was a somewhat rebellious, but also somewhat, um, you know, insular community that we were trying to to protect and, and make sure that we, uh, you know, we could have this outlet, um, you know, from what I think was, you know, overall a pretty, you know, I'd say just a, a, a society that was not necessarily engaged with what we were engaged with at the time. Mm-hmm. Given that you were started gaming so young, when did you discover Appendix N? Was it much later, or were you starting to read the books without being aware that there were Appendix N books? You know, because it's a sort of a, a greatest hits of fantasy for the time, I guess. Yeah, it's much more the latter because I don't think I encountered the term Appendix N until much later in life, and it was, you know, I had the Dungeon Master's Guide, but I, I don't think it was necessarily something I looked at and said I want to emulate what Gary Gygax is doing. It was, you know, my reading at the time, you know, as, from a young age was was sort of fantasy, a lot of sci-fi. So any contact I had with the Appendix and authors were somewhat um, coincidental, right? You know, it overlapped a lot, um, but also I was, you know, doing doing my reading that was, um, you know, more I, I think much more sci-fi bent. So it, it tended to tended towards that genre. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also reading things that were probably more young adults or young kids fantasy. Like the Piers Anthony books were a big part of, you know, when I was a younger kid growing up and, and that, that the Xanth novels, you know, that, you know, that's something I certainly sure. read, but, sure, I, you sure. know, I was encountering Saber Hagen, I was encountering, you know, some of the other authors um, and certainly Token was a, was a, a big, you know, sort of influence on my parents and they sort of, you know, gave me the love for some of those novels. Um, so there were, I, but Appendix N didn't really come into my life until I think much more the time frame that I was re-engaging with role-playing because there, I took a time away from that when I went to college and you know, for many years didn't, you know, didn't do any kind of role-playing or any, any kind of, um, you know, sort of uh, gaming system at all. And then when I had some friends bring me back into it as a, you know, as an adult, that's when I became more aware of the influences as well mm-hmm. as this, this sort of drive to, um, to sort of understand the precursors to D and D and, and, uh, and I was going back to systems like Dungeon Crawl Classics, which, you know, was leading me back to the origins of, D&D anyway, you know, some aspects. So that was, sure, that was an sure. influence of Seems like a lot of people have been surf- surfing a similar wave. I mean, I wouldn't say that our experience is probably not that different from yours in that, in that sense, you know, that surfing a similar wave or is there something in the air about, you know, getting back to the roots or getting under the hood of the things that we've enjoyed so much as, a, as kids. Yeah. And I think just that, you know, from a perspective of being a, a kid on the, I was, I mean, you know, I'm sort of like a really young kid at the age. I wasn't really interested in, uh, in all the, I was probably on the edge or the, you know, the edge of that age where it would be a bigger influence. So maybe if I was a little bit older, I would have been more in tune with sort of the dynamics that, you know, that were current with fantasy at the time, especially, you know, that was the way people consumed culture in that regard. And then when I was coming of age, culture sort of shifted into electronic media, into video games and into, you know, movies being a big influence, much more so than, you know, some of the, the fantasy novels that were going on in the 60s and 70s. Sure, sure. So I guess that's time to uh, start with our uh, diving into the book. And uh, we have a Hygaxian word this week, Jeff. We do. Our word today is... Picadillo. Picadillo. And a picadillo is a small or relatively unimportant offense or sin. And we find the word picadillo on page 71. It's uh, spoken by Random, the character in the book. And Random says, 
Rebna is a ghost city, he told me. It is a reflection of amber within the sea. In it, everything in amber is duplicated as in a mirror. Luella's people live there and dwell there as though in amber. They hate me for a few past peccadilloes, so I cannot venture there with you. So he's telling us a bit about uh, Re- about Rebna and his past peccadilloes. Great, so that great. is our Hygaxian word of the day. Okay. And this week we're reading Roger Zelazny's Nine Princes in Amber. In my hand, I have the first edition 1970 paperback, although I have the fourth printing from 1972. And it has this beautiful Jeffrey Catherine Jones painting on the cover of a man on a horse with a sword and a lance kind of rearing up on what looks like a castle. And on the back of the book, it says, Amber is real. All other worlds are shadows patterned after it. Eric is about to crown himself king. Unfortunately, his brother Corwin, long exiled to the shadow earth, is returning to Amber to reclaim, to rightfully claim the throne. Add to this fantastic brew superhuman supernatural abilities, a society of otherworldly structure, a host of impossible realities, and the results stagger even the most daring imaginations. Uh, wow. Boy, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Fun, right? <laughs> it's, Holy smokes. It's pretty, 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 pretty hot. <laughs> so, Hoy, which version of the book are you reading? I am reading the 1981 printing of the 1976 edition, which is with the Ron Wolofsky cover, which is probably the one that a lot of people encounter, sort of the black cover with the sort of figure eight painting on, the, on there, and sort of depicting the march of Corwin's armies to Amber. Um, the back cover copy is actually a lot shorter. It says, all other worlds are in darkness. Only one is real, Amber, the perfect realm. Now hideous and alien forces rise up against its rulers. Long exiled to the Shadow Earth, Corwin has returned to seize his throne. Yet his bloody path is blocked and guarded by eerie structures beyond imagining. Impossible realities forged by demonic assassins and staggering horrors to challenge the might of Corwin's superhuman fury. Ooh, nice. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I like that as well. Yeah. And, and Mark, which edition of the book are you reading? Well, I don't know if this is cheating or not, but I actually listened to an audiobook uh, version of it. But not cheating at all. It's, nope. It nope. is a, uh, a recording done in 1998 by Sunset Studio Productions out of, I think, Santa Fe. And it's of Zelazny himself reading the books. Oh, what? Uh, so it's a, I think it's a rare thing that you can, you might, I don't know how, I, I, I was given a copy by a friend maybe 15 years ago. And it's, it's awesome to hear him uh, you know, basically doing the narrative. And so if you can find a copy of that, it's well worth it if you're any kind of like, you know, Zelazniophile, because, you know, it's at the time in his life when, you know, he's obviously achieved quite a bit in terms of, you know, his, uh, his science fiction and fantasy, you know, mantle that's been, been part of, you know, his, you know, his awards and everything like that. So, um, but check it out. Yeah. It was, it's nice to listen to. And how is he as a reader? Oh, he's great. Yeah, he's he's really good as a reader. He's he has a deep kind of growly voice, you know, and it, and it's uh it he can a lot of monotone in the characters, but you know it it just it he has inflection points that are obviously what he intended, you know. So it, it works out mm-hmm. really well. I would be fascinated to hear that because I notice a lot of times that Corwin's tone changes from being sort of more grandiose to being very sort of contemporary for the early seventies. He's like mm-hmm. 
hey, dude, you know, right? It's very, it's, every yeah, once swing. in a while. <laughs> yeah. right. Hey, let's swing, dudes, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, Hoy, I, I know that Sanctum Sacorum recently did an episode on Nine Princes in Amber, and I have not listened to it yet because mm-hmm. I knew we were just about to do our episode on it. Have you listened to that episode of Sanctum Sacorum? I, I have not, too, for the same reasons. I, I think that I definitely will before I do the show notes, but for this discussion, I want to just kind of take it as it comes. I, I have not and listened to fun. it either, so... <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So I know that Sanctum. So generally, the three people on Sanctum Sacorum, Bob, Mark, and Jen, tend to agree for the most part. And Holly and I tend to agree for the most part. But it seems as though Sanctum Sacorum and Appendix and Book Club don't always agree. For example, on um, Roger Zelazny's Jack of Shadows, you guys had a lot of um, a lot of issues with it, and Holly and I really enjoyed it. So I'm curious, Mark. What do you think of Roger Zelazny's Nine Princes in Amber? This is another one that sort of stood out with, um, I guess the exception is that we we had a lot of contention, you know, not, not necessarily bad contention, just discussion about the merit of this novel. I, mm-hmm. for many reasons, fall on the sides of this is an important work. I love this work. I've, you know, it's a very problematic work in in sort of the context of today. And even maybe in the context of, you know, 20 years ago, but it it's one of those things that I've always been drawn to from a, just the grandiose nature of it, the elements of philosophy and, you know, uh, and sort of this error narrative, you know, that, that goes throughout it. And if you read the whole series, it has this nice circular circularity about it. That's it's just, I love that, those kind of novels. So, but Bob and Jen, I think had different, you know, sort of, opinions in terms of this they didn't think this was a, a good zelazny work in in the sort of the full extent of they like jack of um jack of shadows um and and those novels that they've read by him previously um so it, it's a book i like but i also recognize that you know it has a lot of a lot of elements that might be distasteful for people you know as you go mm-hmm. through it um especially readers who um may not have encountered it in you know early on in their their reading lives and and are kind of being brought into it and expecting you know a more you know something that stood up a little bit more in terms of you know the the author's choices mm. i mean is this you think part of the overall narrative structure or specifically corwin and is corwin an anti-hero or like in the in the mode of elric you know or is he you know no, I, it, I, don't, the... I don't think so. I, I mean, I think that Zelazny is obviously trying to make a strong character choice. And if you have you guys read any of the later novels in the Amber series? Uh, back in the day, but not recently. Okay. I mean, I, mean, I have not. Okay. Yeah. And I don't think it's it's not necessarily revealing too much because I think it's it's um, referenced in the first book. But this is a first person narration that he is telling to as a story. and And so you can kind of shape your understanding of Corwin from the fact that anything he's telling you, you know, there's this aspect of, is he being a a sort of true and consistent narrator because Mm -hmm. he is the one that's interpreting these events and explaining them to this yet to be named third person, right? That's, that's, Mm -hmm. or the second person that's, that's listening to the story. And, and so rereading it, especially it's, it's one of those things that, you know, it's hard to to disassociate, you know, what's coming out of Corrin's mouth, but you also maybe take a step back from a literary standpoint and say, is he a trustworthy narrator? I think he's a sympathetic character from Zelazny's point of view, because he ultimately is, you know, sort of a heroic self-sacrificing figure, but he's also very self-interested and Mm -hmm. and he's an evolving character too, because I think the references to his self-interest are much stronger in his past, but his time on the shadow earth has changed him in some fundamental way from his kin. 
right? That, mm-hmm. that comes out in the story as well. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think he's definitely a, a, intended to be a, a heroic figure, not necessarily an anti-hero because he's, you know, in contrast to the others, um, you know, he's, he's evolved or changed, you know, somehow to make him more, more, more like the people that he's spent time with. Right. He's certainly capable of feeling guilt knowing that he's taking these races and, and basically turning them into holy warriors, right. you know, and then asking their for their lives when he's known, when he knows he's lost. Um, so there's definitely that. Um, but he's also very cognizant of his power and his place in this grand scheme of things. And, you know, was not to be trifled with either. Now, Mark, have you read The Gates of Creation, the second in the World of Tears novel? I haven't read the second. We did do the first novel. And so, you know, Philip Jose Farmer obviously has a lot of influence on uh, Zelazny. I think Zelazny called it out, you know, explicitly in terms of, you know, one of the people, authors that he's uh, has shaped his writing and his uh, his storytelling. Um, I, I did read some synopses as I was going through the backgrounds, you know, for Sanctum Secorum when we were looking at, uh, at Farmer and, and some of the novels. So I do have that context of, you know, the world of tears being similar in some ways, you know, to the, the, you know, the idea that there's shadows and there are these crafted worlds that are designed by, um, these Ur beings or these, these alien type creatures that, you know, have their, uh, have the, the power to do so. Sure. Yeah. And the second book in the series, specifically The Gates of Creation, we did very recently. It's just the episode before last. So it's kind of great timing as well. Mm-hmm. And our guest on that episode was Christopher Paul Carey, who's also a big Philip Jose Farmer uh, historian. And he was letting us know that Nine Princes in Amber is very much inspired by The Gates of Creation. And then only having one book between the two, the parallels are, are quite obvious to me, because in The Gates of Creation, the main character from the makers of maker of universes ends up being pulled into this alternate world by his kind of evil father and is pitted against all of his brothers and sisters as they're going from dimension to dimension, having these kind of power games with each other. And gates of creation is a lot of fun to read, but it's, it's, it's kind of a much more simplistic approach to this, sure. to, yeah. to what Zelazny is doing here. So it really does seem like Zelazny kind of took that concept and elevated it and brought a lot more complexity to it. What do you think, Hoy, having recently read Gates of Creation as well? I, I think so. I think um, I think that Zelazny is very specifically interested in psychology in a way that, uh, I mean, like sort of archetypal psychology in a way. And, and, and I mean, there's a lot of mythology in Gates of Creation. All the characters are supposed to be reflections. But I think Zelazny sort of uh, explicitly... Um, is interested in throughout the course of his work. You know, there's this other works with um, one sort of like a parallel of the life of the Buddha. And so, so I think there was a spiritual element that um, was not just intellectual with Zelazny that was coming through in there. And so that one of these things is Corwin's journey from being a completely self-interested former mercenary, but with a, an element of soul. He's, he's known as sort of the bard of the family. He writes mm-hmm. songs and, 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 you know, it has a, it has a gentleness at times to him that the other characters don't. Yeah, um, he's a very different protagonist than Jack from Jack of Shadows, that's for sure. Sure. <laughs> he's, he's certainly working out a lot of father issues, I think, in, in the course of these books. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. that as well. So overall, Hoy, what did you think of this book? Did you enjoy it? Um, I liked it quite a lot. I had not remembered anything other than him trying to go back and reclaim his throne. And I, so I didn't really, and I remembering that each of the characters, the brothers and the sisters was quite distinct. And I actually kind of remember that from this 
uh, visual guide to, um, I think it was the Illustrated Zelazny in the 70s, and it was Gray Morrow illustrations, which is actually kind of coincidence because Gray Morrow also did the cover for that copy of Great Gates of Creation that you were talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah. And so he had actually drawn all the trumps of each of the characters. Cool. So I had actually had a visual picture of, you know, Corwin and Blaze and, and um, Gerard and all the other characters. Um, but I'd forgotten sort of the sort of contemporary language and I'd forgotten. Someone had mentioned that Zelazny, I don't know if he always did this or he was experimenting a lot of times with just writing in essentially a single draft. Mm-hmm. And not doing any major revisions. And there were times when I felt that, not because of any kind of sloppiness, but because of it seemed kind of like, okay, here's an obvious way I could have gone, but this was the thing I'm just going to go here because I'm just going to go with this dream because it's kind of yeah. interesting. And he didn't go back to revisit an idea that he might have just popped up before. Yeah, right? I agree. Um, you know, he didn't go deeper into the relationship uh, with um, the first sister you know, what that relationship, he just remembers there's a little bit of fondness. He doesn't elaborate on it and he just goes forward. Right. Um, so there's that kind of element I feel it's just, but there's a lot of velocity in this book and, and like just like the endless battle up the staircase is epic. And, and he just is always going forward in this book. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, there, there are different ways an author can approach their work and some authors are very much outliners. They have an idea of how it begins, how it ends, and they'll kind of create an outline for how they're going to get from the beginning to the end and then flesh it out by following that outline. And then there are authors who have have a beginning, have an idea of where it might end, but they just start writing and they see where the story takes them. And there is no right or wrong way to write fiction, but it seems like Zelazny is very much the latter, both in what you're telling me about what, um, what you've read about him, and also just my experience of reading him, it very much feels that way as well. And mm-hmm. I think one potential positive to that style of writing is it can bring you to a lot of really exciting and unexpected places, which is something I really enjoy about both of the Zelazny works I've read so far, is he tends to really um, surprise me as a reader, which I really appreciate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's definitely you don't feel, I mean, maybe all in the grand scheme of things, like Mark, you alluded to it becoming a circular narrative at the end, but I don't feel like it's completely schematic the way some other books, fantasy books, especially sort of current day fantasy is like, oh, here's the point where, you know, the Dark Lord arises, blah, blah, blah. And this one is is full of twists. And, you know, you think he's going to continue on, uh, you know, on the ocean and then he jumps to see his brother and leaves his men on the, you know, on the ocean or that kind of stuff like that. Yeah, because he's, um, he's created this world where these characters have these abilities that he, he really, I think that kind of speaks to how he uses it as a narrative device. He's not I mean, it's, it, it's one of these unexpected twists that you get in terms of like how their actions are, but it's it's completely within tune of, you know, what these characters are capable of. And and it's really interesting to see where it takes them. Mm-hmm. I'm actually also interested, since you have actually heard him reading the book, like, does he impart the sense of velocity that I get from just seeing it on the page, you know, especially like the battles, you know, on the ocean and up the staircase and it, through the various worlds. It's really interesting because a lot of what comes across in his narration is this, there, there's a certain weariness about Corwin, about, you know, the, you know, sort of his recovery, but also just the, this endlessness of their lives and this repetitiveness in terms of like all these interactions. A lot of that weariness comes across in, in some of those narrations. And, and it, and it really is this, you know, he's, he's approaching Corwin, the character Corwin's approaching this from, you know, I am standing at the edge of chaos at the edge of the world or the end of the world. And I'm telling you this so that there is, there is something, um, you know, left of me if I'm, if I'm gone, you know, in, in terms of, you know, how he's telling the story. And, 
and th- that comes across because he's at the end of the series, he's reached a point of just utter exhaustion. And, and I think that's more of what here in the narration imparts more so than the velocity that's on the page. So it's interesting to see that contrast. Mm. Right. That's fascinating. And obviously he was reading it 20 years after he wrote it. Right. So there's obviously a lot of time for him to feel differently about than the actual impulse that was driving him when he first wrote it. And maybe in the context also that he, there's other novels and, you know, hadn't been completely finalized or written or certainly not pushed out in the world. Um, You know, so Mm -hmm. he had, he had the context of looking back on it from a more holistic sense than probably when he was first writing these, uh, this first version. Sure. Sure. And Mark, one thing I'm holding on to right now is you were mentioning that uh, you guys were discussing the distasteful aspects of this book together on Sinctum Secorum. And I'm curious what you guys, or maybe not you guys, what you specifically may have found distasteful about this book. Because from from my perspective, we've read a lot of these Appendix N books at this point, and I find a lot of um, really um, pretty, I guess, distasteful depictions of all kinds of different people in other works. But I'm not really finding Nine Princes and Amber to be really one of the more problematic of the stories. So what was it that you found about it to be distasteful? So I think there's, you know, we talked a little bit about this during Sanctum, but there's a a very much of a marginalization of the women characters in the books, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of how much Mm -hmm. um, study they're given and how much, you know, breadth they're they're given. Like Hoy, you were mentioning that there's not really any background into those relationships. And they're they're automatically dismissed by the male characters as not, you know, being interested in the throne, not being capable of taking it. Um, You know, there's a deference that they pay to all the brothers. It, It is a very masculine oriented story. Um, and which is, you know, contextually, you know, part of, uh, you know, I think what was going on in terms of fantasy literature at the time, it's inheriting some of that, but it's also a story that Zelazny purposely told. And so I, I think if you look at this from, you know, is there, is there an element of dismissiveness that's, uh, that's just, it's a dissonant, you know, from a, from what I would like to see as a reader these days, it's not really addressing sort of the richness that those characters have. It's just, they're just marginalized. And then that kind of comes across in some of the language, you know, you, you see random, you know, referring to all his sisters as bitches. You see, I think Corwin says that a few times and it's just demeaning. And it also just reinforces that, that type of approach to female characters, which you can sort of interpret as by saying, you know, this is Corwin. This is obviously some of his anti-heroic elements and, and, and views Mm -hmm. coming out, but it's also one of those things that it, I don't, I don't know if that's what Zelazny's truly trying to intend to do, or if it's really just more of a, a it's part of the culture that was at the time. It's, I, I don't know the history there and I, I'm certainly just, you know, speculating, but I, I would hope that that would be handled differently in today's context where, you know, even if that wasn't a primary character, it's just not reinforcing some of the languages, the language use and things like that, that, you know, are, are just, just make you, take you out of the page and take you out of the story, at least to me in a, in a modern right, right. context. Right. I, I think you're actually interesting addressing two things too, addressing the specific depiction, which I think definitely could be, uh, as you say, um, take you out. And then there's the structural issue about whether or not the, the female characters deserve greater representation within the context of the story. And certainly if it was being written today, that would be the case. But I also think if you're talking about sort of like di- histories and dynastic histories, if he's sort of, if he's sort of, rearticulating the sort of archetypal dynastic war, then usually, again, through our history on this earth, it's usually not the women who make the greatest impact, obviously. I mean, there's exceptions like Queen Elizabeth, et cetera, right? But at least as history has been 
uh, thrown down to us, right? And so there, there's maybe he's sort of playing with that kind of theme, like, okay, this is a dynastic war, um, and usually the women are can form alliances, but they're usually the ones who cannot be the he- at the head of this. Right, but it, I, th- yeah. I think if you, you look at it from like a, the, he's painting a tapestry where he's like, you know, sort of inheriting all those elements of history. But then you, behind that history, you know, even though history is sort of putting the facade on on those elements, the the women of the time, the interactions, the, the, the just the just what you would expect from, you know, the day to day lives of people. They that impact is not translated across history, and and it's reaching in and understanding, even if it's just putting in in better context or or making more depth. I think that's where it's kind of lacking in terms of uh, some of the, you know, some of the time frame differences between now and when it was written. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, and also I think that you know if if Zelazny were trying to do a recreation of history, that's one thing. But in 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 fantasy works, we have an opportunity to kind of explore things in a different way. And even in the Gates of Creation, the there's a lot of things that are similar in that the number of brothers was at least double the number of sisters. So even just the sheer mm-hmm. number of male siblings was larger than the number of female siblings. But also in Gates of Creation, the men were the ones who had a lot more power. But the flip side of that, though, is in the Gates of Creation, the really satisfying kind of twist in the end is that it's actually this one of the sisters who's been the kind of the diabolical mastermind of this whole thing and ends up revealing herself as kind of the main current villain in the story, which was really kind of a fun uh, reveal. And we don't really get kind of any kind of a satisfying feminine moment where one of the female characters has any kind of real major impact on the story at all. So I, I, I'm with you. I can see why you guys found that part particularly troublesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I don't disagree. I'm just trying to, you know, try to see if there's a frame around this that that sort of explains his choices. Um, I think more more lightheartedly, think- you know, the the fact that they're eating steaks and smoking cigarettes all the time just makes me <laughs> <laughs> just makes me just oh my gosh, what are you guys doing to yourselves? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's very seventies. It's definitely like I can just like yeah, you know, and drinking whiskey yeah. and you know, it's just it's like it's definitely I, I picture them in like those uh you know, plaid suits with the, and the big turtlenecks in the seventies, you know, they used to <laughs> I do love that. Absolutely. It is a snapshot of that lifestyle. And, and it's, it's very fun to see that. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, more actually, though, the, the sort of, uh, queen of Rebma, um, I mean, she, she sort of is attracted and sort of yields to Corwin's attentions, but she has a few sort of interesting moments herself though. Like the choice that she makes of forcing random to, you know, pay amends to her kingdom essentially by marrying the, the least, what's considered the least desirable noble woman. That's fair in her kingdom. Yeah, she, she's yeah. She, she's she's an interesting character. Um, I, I don't know if she does enough to counterbalance it, but I think you're right. She the the, the yeah. novel isn't completely lacking any interesting female characters or any women who have any impact on the story, but there's definitely a a a, a lack of right. I mean it. It's nine princes and amorous. Unfortunately, it's not nine princes and princesses and amorous. And so definitely, is <laughs> by by, is definitely totally masculine story. And the women are definitely adjuncts to the men. Th- uh, you know, do they get to do something interesting? Is the is the big is the next question, obviously. And then Moria, to a certain extent, does, but not as much as one might hope. Sure. Now, taking this over to kind of the more gaming side of the conversation, uh, the Amber series is specifically cited in the Appendix N as a source of inspiration on the creation of the game and something that 
the um, authors of AD&D inspired, uh, encouraged you to read. So, uh, Mark, why do you think the Amber series is listed as one of the main inspirations for D&D? You know, that's, it's hard to, to pull out anything specific that's, you know, this is a monster, this is a spell, this is, you mm-hmm. know, something that influenced the system. You know, there are some elements of D&D that came later, like there's the Castle Amber module that, you know, specifically kind of pulls on some of the threads with Clark Ashton Smith and with Zelazny. So there, mm-hmm. there's actually, you know, some inheritance there that's going and taking it um, into like a context of an adventure module. I, I think it's much more about, you know, the this this ability to transport yourself between worlds, plane shifting, you know, the yeah. idea that there's these, you know, there's, you know, sort of like superhuman creatures that, are, you know, that, you know, that uh, these princes, you know, they heal faster. They, um, they're almost like the, like the high level characters, you know, that have, you know, a, a, a super normal capabilities compared to, you know, the average person who doesn't train themselves hard and doesn't, you know, go through this, this, this sort of adventuring lifestyle. But I mean, that plane shifting and, and that experience of, transitioning from places to place that there's an infinitude of worlds that there's um you know there's possibly like some sort of central location to it where you know where it's a, it's a place of order compared to the external or external chaos i mean that's another aspect too that's there's a, this uh you know creation you know sort of mythos behind the the amber series that gets into later novels but you know it's it's kind of clear that there's elements of law and elements of chaos that are um, you know, the part of this world, this infinitude of worlds. And I think that's an, an influence as well. Um, I, but I don't, I didn't see anything specific that, you know, I could call out to say that's clearly, you know, where this is inspired from the deck of many things maybe could be, you know, attributed to like sort of the, the tarot cards and the, you know, the ability to draw magic from them and the trumps and things like that. Well, I would pull on, you know, I would, I would, um, as you say, pull on the thread of the high level play aspect that, Corwin initially, when you first see him, is you know an amnesiac in his hospital, and as far as he knows, he's just you know a regular guy, right? But as the story ramps up, you know certainly the bad by the time he's battling on like you know the steps, he's pretty much like a twentieth level fighter with one hundred twenty hit points or whatever. <laughs> yeah. you might say, right? That's right? fair. And, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Um, so that kind of scale, like, what can you do? What is the difference between? playing a mid-level or low-level character versus playing a 20th level character. It has to be not just that they fight 300 orcs. It has to be something even more epic, you know, and that, that that's, I think, maybe something that was appealing to them. So, okay, listen, this is what a 20th, you know, as you arise, the challenges increase, you know. Yeah, it, yeah it, it, and it, not even just the strength of what you're fighting, but also kind of the scope of what you're working with, because maybe your exactly, challenges exactly. aren't even necessarily specifically combat focused anymore. Maybe your challenges are you are up against other entities who are equally powerful, who are all after one thing. And in this case, it's the throne. Mm. Yeah, right, it's raising right. that army of a quarter of a million troops and marshalling them across worlds to assault you know, this impregnable uh, fortress. And, and that's, that's a high level campaign theme. That's not what your typical adventure, you know, hack and slash dungeon is. Um, Now, Mark, I know you have a lot of experience with other systems. And you said when you were a kid, you guys would experiment with, 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 with different game systems. Have you ever tried Amber Diceless? I haven't, I have a copy of it. And so I've, you know, looked at it, just references, but I've never played it. Um, So it's, it, I know it's out there and I, I know it's, it's, it's an interesting, unique artifact, you know, trying to approach it from a diceless system, which is, which, which is really cool. You know, I, I, I dig some of the, uh, you know, the fact that they were trying to make an, uh, an alternate way of doing role-playing that's, that's more part of this narrative, but I haven't had a chance to play it. Have you guys? 
I have not hoy. No, no. I know that um, the sort of other sort of uh, evolutionary descendants of it. I think uh, Lords of Olympus, maybe, and maybe Gossamer, um, Gossamer World, something like that. Something, something similar to that. And then obviously it, it presages stuff, systems like Fate and stuff like that, in sense of being more narrative oriented. Because um, it was what early '90s when it came out. You know, I'm not sure when Amber Diceless came out, but I, I and I've, I've actually not read it, but I did read about Amber Diceless. And having read about it, it seems to really kind of make a lot of sense for the flavor of the setting. Because I, I know that um, DCC just came out, DCC Linkmar, and they kind of tweaked the rules to kind of fit that setting. Mark, you're currently writing the the rule set and, and, and setting booklets. Um, is it going to be a book or a box set? Uh, it'll be three books and three books. Uh, it'll be a box set just like sort of like Lankmar is where it's spread across different volumes uh, to make it a little bit easier to to manage as a judge. Perfect. And I know that you guys will be tweaking the DCC rules to kind of fit in with the flavor of that world. And I know that in Amber Diceless, you know, there's there's no dice and the way that the way that um, challenges are adjudicated is you just simply look at your stats and if I've got a higher sword playability than you do, then I'm going to win I'm going to beat you in a sword fight. It's really that simple. And I thought that worked really well with the story because, you know, here's Corwin who's like sword fighting with Eric and Eric's like, oh, I see that in your 300 years on earth, you've become a better swordsman. You know, so it's like you, you can even in the story, you can tell that people go away and they train for a specific thing and then they come back and surprise the person that now they're slightly better than that person. Uh, that seems to really kind of tie in nicely for the flavor of the book. Sure. And I think that would also lend to scaling much more rapidly from Corwin, again, as we said, not realizing who he is to all of a sudden being a, a virtual demigod, yeah. right? And that's a little harder in a sort of traditional uh, class and level system or D D100 system, you know? What do you, yeah. what do you guys think? I mean, this is kind of going back out, out of the gaming for a second, but what do you guys think of that trope of the memory loss and the approach that Zelazny had with it? Because it's, it's somewhat dismissed after the first, maybe third of the novel, but did that, mm-hmm. was, was that captivating as a, especially Jeff as a first time reader? I mean, it, it, cause it can be overused. It can be very heavy handed. Um, oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a cheap and easy trope and a cheap and easy device that's used in a lot of literature and films and TV shows. And, but just because something is well used, um, or some, just because something is overused doesn't mean it can't be well used. You know, like in 28 Days Later, we start off and we're three weeks into the zombie apocalypse. And it's kind of a cheap way to start, but it's actually also very effective having that guy wake up in the hospital bed surrounded by just death and then having him kind of discover the zombie world. I felt like it really worked well in here. And I also thought it was a great opportunity to learn about Corwin's resourcefulness because we're constantly having him kind of playing along with things to figure out what's going on. And he's acting as though he knows what's happening, even though he doesn't. And he's doing a great job of making everybody else convinced that he hasn't lost his memory. And also one thing I really enjoy about reading, Zel- <clears throat> about reading Zelazny is his sense of humor. And a lot of that really comes through in, in kind of that, those kinds of exchanges he has with his brothers and sisters while he's trying to figure out what's happening to his memory. I definitely agree with that. I think another thing to jump on, I think, is that it almost feels like the first few chapters are almost like a film noir. Yeah, and Zelazny yes. <laughs> has it has an instinct, I think, for that. In Jack of Shadows, I think that came through as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Certainly in the part when he's on Dayside, and so I think that Zelazny. I don't know if he ever wrote any crime novels, whether under his own name or under a pen name, but certainly he seems versed 
in sort of like the mid 20th century pulp noir. Um, and it's an interesting thing to go from pulp noir to epic fiction, epic fantasy fiction in the same same work. Yeah, but I, I, yeah. I like that aspect that you mentioned, Jeff, in, in terms of that really is character revealing and, and gives you the insights um, mm-hmm. into his resourcefulness. It, it is very noir. I think you know, another last scene's work that's focused on like private eye noir is Eye of Cats, which is, you know, it's like a another sort of uh, detective narrator, you know, kind of navigating that as well. Um, so he, he, I think he has experience in, along those lines from some of his other works, that, you know, that he's, ex, he's experienced with, experiment with. Yeah, and I, I also think it works nicely with his style of writing because as Hoy was talking about, Zelazny tends to kind of try to, he, he tends to like to write things um, from just, just start at the beginning and just write it straight on through. So in a weird way, maybe, maybe Zelazny didn't even completely know where a lot of this was going. So we're, as a reader, kind of discovering these things at the same time that the author and the protagonist are also discovering them. And in a lot of ways, I, I think that that can also be kind of really kind of compelling. And I think there's a chance that perhaps at the moment where Zelazny kind of had really solidified what's actually going on in this world is also the moment where Corwin gets his memory back. Mm-hmm. Yep. Potentially. That's, I think that's, it also is also useful because it lets us um, put ourselves in Corwin's shoes. If we know too much about, if Corwin's too much of Corwin's, if he's walking around with all his backstory and all of his knowledge at the very beginning of the story, I mean, it's pretty hard to, put yourselves in the shoes of a immortal demigod, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah, definitely. But also, it also like links him directly to the shadow earth, which I think is a very right. important narrative device for the reader to, to right. feel like he has this connection and, uh, and carries that forward with him too, into the, into the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. So I have a question for you guys. At one point, Corwin is kidnapped by his brother. And when his brother is, um, uh, ends up getting the throne and is crowned king. After that, his brother decides to blind Corwin. Burn, he burns out his eyeballs so that the last thing he saw was him ascending to the throne. Now, you guys are uh, a dungeon master or a judge of a story, and somebody who really hates a character successfully kidnaps that character. How fucked up is it for a <laughs> dungeon master or a judge to have that guy burn the PC's eyeballs out. Is that fair? Is that fair game? Or is that like, that's not cool. Like, come on. Like, right. let's, let's well, that's why, that's why player characters will never, ever let themselves be taken prisoner. At least in classic DVD. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that, I mean, it's, it's an interesting idea to consider in certain campaigns that the consequence of, you know, maybe it's not something that's that has to be or is destined to be, but if the character has a, a moment of a failure, where they, you know it's and it's a part, maybe it's a party in this case, right? Because you're you're rarely doing like a solo adventure, like it would be a Corwin situation. But you know, they're captured all at once. What are the degradations that and the conditions that are sort of setting them up for that next stage in the narration? And I think overcoming you know that type of disability or obstacle, you know it. I think it's fair game in some judges or some GMs toolkit, you know, especially if the players are on board with, you know, the setting and, and know that that's a consequence mm-hmm. of their failure. Cause it, it does present this sort of like interesting reset moment uh, that you can introduce to a campaign where, you know, now it's a prison escape to recover and revenge, you know, story, uh, you know, that, that becomes a driving motivation for them. Um, and, uh, you know, especially in a world where there's magical healing 
those type of injuries are are probably not as um, enduring unless your setting really is the kind of the you know the grim reality of um, no recovery. Yeah. But I, I think that people would take that with a little bit of a grain of salt because they would just say, well, I'll just go to the 10th level cleric nearby and get, you know, my, my eyes back. <laughs> but if yeah. it becomes like a quest yeah. for thing where I have to go and find, you know, the, the, the eyes that are kept by this witch that are, you know, sort of like the seer that, you know, that's this figure that, you know, those are the only ways I can get that. It's a interesting sort of like way to drive the narrative that may be unexpected. Right. Exactly. Right. And thank you for saying quest for it. Cause that's kind of where I was going to go with this is that I feel like, uh, you know, Dungeon Crawl Classics was very much let's let's write um, let's write a, um, a fantasy role playing game inspired by the appendix and knowing what we know about rules writing now. And a big part of kind of the DCC approach to gaming is the quest for it idea. And that's also a big part of this book, too. I mean, at one point, Corwin has lost the ability to kind of do this cool world shift thing that all of his brothers and sisters can do. But he quests for it. He ends up going to Revna goes into this like under underwater city and walks along that pattern to gain that ability. Uh, so I, I feel like that's, I feel like that's really well illustrated in this book. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a thing that in fiction that is easier to do than in role playing, which is to have those seemingly dramatic reverses that are, are, are devast- devastating dramatic mm-hmm. reverses. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, those become maybe potentially table flipping moments in like a regular RPG game. <laughs> 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 <You know? laughs> also true. So. It's a delicate balance. The judge has to be very cognizant of his players' needs and and you know understanding. But like, I think it'd be kind of cool to see that actually you know work out in in some in some way because it it is one of those challenge accepted. You know, I want to see what what we can get, we can do with this. And and you have you have some authors that are really creating you know, very grim, dire places like, uh, you know, the, the null singularity type worlds of DCC, mm-hmm. where it's, it, it, people crave that sort of, um, you know, depiction of, uh, of a, a worldview that's, that's not high fantasy. Right. And, right, and right. I think there's, there's people that are, are, you know, engaged with that a little bit more. And so you might, you might have a table that's, that you can judge, you know, that you can kind of attune to the needs of, uh, of, of that as well. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And I think also in point by systems like GURPS, I think it would be easier to get buy-in because like, oh, now I have 40 point disadvantage of blindness, but now I can also, you know, now I have 40 more points to play with. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now I can buy the blind fighting feet. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas, you know, traditional, at least through first edition, you wouldn't have that ability, you know, but that's... You know, that's true. Um, <laughs> that's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> so when we were discussing the Lee Brackets, um, the Halfling and other stories, one of the things that I asked, um, that I asked Hoy and Paulo about was um, is there room in your D&D game for romance? And the reason I brought that up in that one is there was a lot of love in that. Um, when I was in, and, and it's notable to me that there are certain fantasy tropes that make it to D&D and for certain ones that don't. And romance is one that generally doesn't make it into D&D. One that I was noticing in Nine Princes and Amber that I feel like I don't see moved over to D&D very often is the quest for the throne. Like, I'm I'm the rightful heir to this throne is a very common trope in fantasy, but it's not one that I see used in our role-playing games much. So do you guys feel like the the fight for the throne is something that is compelling for a player or not? Discuss. I think it is, but I think that OSR or classical D&D maybe is not the right, um, I should say it's not the right, but is not, optimally set up for that because it's usually a zero to hero type situation mm-hmm. right 
whereas something that's already built with the you know the idea of a sort of domain game maybe um later iterations like axe or or you know stuff like that where you know that you're potentially going to take the throne might works better than that you know um so you know you tend to be more of a freebooter character in, in early iterations of dungeons and dragons right and even dcc to a certain extent sure what do you think what do you think mark yeah it's i mean it's interesting because it, I mean, you could uncover that in in various ways you know like like Hoy was saying, you know, a lot of the OSR, DCC especially, you know, the funnel is built around the fact that you're a, a you know, a non-adventurer that's taking up arms, whatever you can get, and and going out and, and becoming things. So there's there's not really a hidden connection or hidden motivation. But if you're a judge who's designing something where that becomes an opportunity or a goal, or it be or it does become something that's revealed, like you can play around with the idea that maybe you're you're you, I think it's it gets a little bit, you know, tropey if you're if you suddenly find out that you are the real heir to the throne, and that that gets very Robert Robert Jordany, right? Where it's you know everybody right. is sort of this hidden hero idea that you know it, it, I you know I, I really like the aspects of the the OSR that are you know basically there's a driving need for this, and the need is that you know your village is getting you know kidnapped uh you know by by the monsters up the hill, and that's what it's sort of like leads you down this life. That's a that's a, a direct sort of compelling motivation versus this, you know, you are special and you are, you know, this, uh, you know, you, there's this greater destiny for you because I, I just don't, res- I don't necessarily respond well to that as a player. I it's so it's yeah. hard for me to think of like how that could be done effectively. But I, I think if you did have a, a setting where you were a prince and you were displaced and you were or there's a usurper and that was the start of the campaign um, and, and sort of the background for your character. Um that's an interesting, you know, way to to frame it. I think that gets a little bit more close to what Zelazny's doing in, in Nine Princes of Amber. Right, right. And then the question is, how then is it suitable for a traditional table of you know four to eight players? Mm-hmm, you know, are exactly. the, do other players then accept the roles as sort of adjuncts to this chosen one, or are they equally vying for this position? You know, how do you set up that kind of game? And I think something, again, maybe some of the more narrative games, again, like Fate or something like that, that might be more suited than traditional OSR type games for this kind of, this kind of uh, you know, move. Yeah, I think maybe the reason why we don't find this trope used as often in D&D is similar to the reason we don't find romance is used often in D&D is it, it does tend to be kind of more focused to a specific player and it's, or a specific character. And it's not that a specific character can't have their shining moments but you don't want to spend too much time focused on one person when you've got eight people sitting around a table playing. Right. Potentially. Um, and also it's like, once you have the crown, then what is that the end or cause and I, I feel like if I ended up wanting to incorporate something like that, it would be a much more kind of Conan style. Like you get the crown, but it's not something you actually want <laughs> more, more likely than not, you're going to be abandoning it to go off on the next adventure. Right. I think that's the kind of thing where you have like a stable of characters. So then once you've reached the, you know, become the king, then suddenly your henchmen are, you know, are now your captains and lieutenants and become your, your main player characters. And then at a certain level, you're sort of playing the domain game and then you zoom back down into sort of your mid-level characters. Yeah, they, I, I sure. think there's lots of, you know, examples of campaigns that have gone on for years and decades where it's it's somewhat self-referential, right? You have this earlier characters propagating the narrative for the later characters where, you know, they may encounter sort of like the, the, the heroes of before in the context of, you know, they are the Kings or they are the, you know, the, the patrons or, or whatever. And, and it's, and it's, it's kind of fun if you have a long running campaign that can inherit some of those qualities. Yeah, sure. 
Cool. So we're at the point where we can start wrapping some stuff up and kind of sharing some last thoughts. I have two really quick last thoughts. One is that in the world of Amber, gunpowder doesn't ignite, which I just think is kind of a fun way of if you don't want to have guns in your world, then you can just make that the reason. Gunpowder just simply doesn't ignite. And the other thing that I thought was cool is in Nine Princes and Amber, there are lots and lots of moments where Corwin and and whoever he's traveling with at the time encounter obstacles that aren't just monsters. They encounter massive storms, magical or not. They encounter um, uh, entire city, uh, entire forests set on fire and having to deal with mm. uh, forest fires. These are really kind of uh, uh, intense, scary, and fun challenges you can give your characters that don't just involve something snarling that they throw their, throw their swords at. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have any kind of um, thoughts you would like to share with us before we wrap up that you wanted to express? Well, as for the gunpowder, stay tuned because uh, book two is the guns of Avalon. So. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> um, I, I think he's uh, is really a, a master of staging. I mean, like certainly the battle, like the battle up the stair- stairway to, to Amber or the battles on the ships that Corwin's fighting and he's jumping from ship to ship to ship. Um, so he's really a master of that. I think so finding ways to stage your scenes and it's not just, Hey, it's a 30 by 30 room in a dungeon and there's 30 orcs, you know, really take advantage of saying, okay, this is the environment you're in. Uh, so on the macro scale, like you were talking Jeff about like these giant forest fires and storms, anything like that down to the fact that this path is literally only wide enough for one character to go up at a time and they mm. just have to fight until the person falls. And then the next person takes steps up to take their place. Yeah. So, yeah, that it. it cool. there's a, it, he's he's very good at crafting that that detail that just engages you as a reader, and translating that to, to a game master or to a setting is is a valuable thing if you can do it. So it, it's it's kind of fun when people can get you know that much uh, engagement from a storytelling aspect of D anD D as they are from a uh, you're reading a book like Celestine's book. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Awesome. Well, Mark, thank you so much for being on the show. You've been a great guest. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank, thank you so you, much Mark. for having me, guys. It's it's right. it's been a pleasure talking about this, which, like I said, has been a big influence. Uh, this book, you know, in particular, has been a big influence on sort of my version of Appendix N. Um, you know, and I've and I've certainly you know tried to explore the different concepts that you know that intrigued me about it in some of my writing. So um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I, I really enjoy it, and I think it stands up. You know, given that there are some some things that I uh, you know, which could be addressed, you know, in terms of like a, a modern take on it. But even even with that, it's a compelling novel, and and Zelazny's just a fun fun author all around. Right, right, and definitely has a lot of velocity. So it's not it's not a slog where you're like, oh, when when do I get yeah. to the good bits? You know? <laughs> that tends to be true with a lot of the appendix. Then, like they they it's they true. get they get moving. You know, it's right. not like you mentioned the Wheel of Time series, Mark, or like Game of Thrones, where in, in most of Appendix N novels, after 30 pages, you've gone through like complete, like five different eras. And, uh, <laughs> but like in the Wheel of Time or Game of Thrones, 30 pages, like you've barely like left the village and have like. like Tyrion's just zipped up his pants. <laughs> exactly. Well, we've got some really great episodes coming up. Episode 35 is going to be on Michael Moorcock's Stormbringer. And episode 36 is going to be on Manly Wade Wellman's Who Fears the Devil. Ooh, looking forward to those. Yeah. And Hoy, can you let us know how people can contact us? Sure. Uh, you can find us uh, if you want to email us. It's appendixn 
at gmail.com, Appendix Nine Book Club, Appendix Nine Book Club at gmail.com. Uh, on Twitter, we're at Appendix underscore N. And uh, we're also on Facebook and G+. And I guess not, now MeWe yet or not yet? Um, I'm on MeWe. Yeah, I'm on MeWe. I don't know if we have a group yet, so we'll, we we'll figure that out. We don't. Yeah. But we should, okay. we, should, we should make that happen. Yep, yep. Um, and yes, please, uh, if you enjoy uh, the podcast, uh, leave us a review on iTunes or your uh, podcast platform of choice. It really helps people find us. And uh, please come back. Awesome. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.